From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair podcast. And uh, Zach, I think you are aware that we put out a survey to uh, uh, the listenership asking them how they felt about the podcast uh, this last week. And I'm, I'm pleased to say thank you, dear listeners, that uh, most of you really have been enjoying what we've been talking about. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks, for the, thanks for the love. It's always nice to to hear good things. And, you know, I'll be honest, every now and then it's actually kind of nice to get some some less uh, pleasant feedback, too. Keeps us a little humble, keeps us working. You know, you can't ever believe that you're that everything you're doing is going great. Got to got to. Oh, I mean, you can. I definitely don't want you to believe that anything you're doing is great. (laughs) I don't think you'd ever let me think that way, buddy. Just letting you know, like, (laughs) uh, you know, it's uh, I want you to I want you to really feel the the love <laughs> so hey, i have um, a i have a question for you or a thing i wanted to, to get you to say a little something about because uh i'm excited on your behalf i know you're maybe a little uh ambiguous on it but uh i think by the time that most people listen to this you'll at least be uh very shortly set to take off on the uh, vine pair reader trip to spain and well obviously it's probably too late for anyone listening to this to uh to participate uh they will be ongoing and you want to you want to give a, a brief rundown of what those trips are like and and if people are interested in what they should do yeah, man. So uh, we run these trips. Uh, we run a few every every fall and spring. Basically, um, one of the members of the editorial team, so me or Emily, our editor-in-chief, or Kat, uh, one of our staff writers, writes mostly about beers. Most of you know who listen. Tim, who everyone's very well aware of, <laughs> um, who writes about wine. Sometimes Keith will lead uh, trips to different regions um, focused on beer, spirits, wine, or all three. The one to Spain we're doing is to Barcelona, um, and it's uh, led by myself and our friend John Lerner of this company, Tailored Tours. Um, and they are basically uh, our partners over there, and we're going to do a trip focused on the vermouth scene of Barcelona, the gin scene of Spain, and then we're going to also head to two different uh, wine regions. We're going to head to Penedès for uh, Cava, so you know Spain's really famous sparkling wine, and we're also going to head to Priorat for um, you know the, an amazing red, um, and just really uh, you know get down with it all. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh it sounds like a blast and um you know, maybe uh maybe if you if you listeners have uh regions or places you want to visit uh with someone from the Vine Pair staff like <coughs> yours truly, uh yeah, yeah. send send us an email. And yeah, and we only we we only take 20 people every time. It's really fun. First come first serve in terms of signing up and 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 coming over with us. You you know, responsible for getting yourself there and then uh, the fee of the trip, but that the fee of the trip includes, you know, obviously all the drinking experiences and eating experiences which are pretty plentiful. Um, and, and it's, it's a ton of fun. Uh, it was something we tried last year, started last year and we've had a lot of success with it. Kat's actually headed uh, the week after I'm in Spain, she's headed to Belgium to do a beer trip with, a uh, with, you know, with the readership as well, which should be really cool. They're going to go to Antwerp and Brussels, uh, and enjoy amazing beers. And, you know, that should be, I'm actually bummed I'm missing that one, but I felt like, you know, Kat and Kat's the better person to go and talk about beer than me. Yeah. That sounds like a fun one. So I think talking about these regions that we're about to go visit in Spain leads to today's topic, which um, I've always been really interested in, and that is whether or not wine regions should specialize. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I've gotten a lot of questions when I've when I've traveled uh, to different regions as to whether or not they should be known for a certain kind of drink or not, right? Like a certain kind of wine. So you know, 
as the Finger Lakes, for example, should we be known for Riesling? And should we say, like, every producer here should really push that we're the best region in America for Riesling? Or as Napa, should we be known for Cabernet Sauvignon, for production of quality Cabernet Sauvignon? Or as uh, the region of Chile, we talked about this in an earlier podcast, Zach, like, should we become known for Cabernet? And basically, the, the idea here is is twofold. One, does that, if we become known for one grape, does that push us as an industry um, to, you know, as a region to, to all strive to make the best version of this grape, right? The best wine from this grape. And two, does that help us sell on the market? Right. So I have thoughts about both. Um, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts because it's, it's a question I hear a lot from, from wine producers is do regions that specialize find it easier to sell their wine than regions that don't. And this is mostly coming from the new world, right? Because in the old world, you mostly have, AOC, DOC, um, you know, systems that mandate that the region does specialize, right? Rioja is known for Rioja. Uh, you know, Burgundy is known for Burgundy or Pinot Noir. Piemonte is known for Barolo, so Nebbi- the Nebbiolo grape. Like, so they have sort of specialized. But new world regions are grappling with this idea of like, we, ha- you know, this is this is the world's our oyster, so we can be known for whatever we want to be known for. But also, like, are we shooting ourselves in the foot by being being known for whatever we want to be known for? This is a really tough question to answer because I think the answer to it depends a little bit on what sort of timescale you're looking on. I think it's undoubtedly true that some of the New World regions that have had the most success in, let's say, the American market are places that have become known for one specific variety. New Zealand sells a shit ton of Sauvignon Blanc in the United States because people associate New Zealand and Sauvignon Blanc. But if you're someone who doesn't want to make Sauvignon Blanc or only Sauvignon Blanc, you want to make Pinot Noir or Chardonnay or Syrah or whatever else, are you ever going to be able to sell that in the U.S.? Debatable. I mean, I think, you know, you can talk to people in New Zealand and talk to the their wine board and ask them and, and they're, you know, off the record at least would probably tell you it, it's a big barrier to selling anything but Sauvignon Blanc. The same thing is certainly true closer to home for me with, with the Willamette Valley in Oregon where, you know, the Pinot Noir is king and trying to kind of generate enthusiasm for any other variety outside of Pinot Noir is a little bit of a tough sell. You know, even white grapes like Chardonnay or Pinot Gris or Riesling are a bit of a struggle to sell in the market, even though it's a counterpoint to to Pinot Noir. And, you know, no one's going to plant any red grape besides Pinot Noir, basically, um, except in very limited quantities. Uh, So I think on a short scale, on a short, shorter time scale and in the past, absolutely. If you wanted to penetrate the American consciousness broadly, it was much easier to do it to attach one variety or one style of wine to a single place and say, this is what the Willamette Valley is known for. This is what New Zealand is known for. This is what Napa Valley is known for. That said, I think things are changing. I think for the, on the one hand, some of those regions are really coming up against issues that are either related to cost, as in the case of Napa and to some extent the Willamette Valley, where just the land is so expensive that it's hard to get, it's hard to plant, it's hard to, for someone new to purchase, it's hard to kind of, you know, build out. Or in the case of Napa, you really can't. There's almost no more land that can be planted within the valley. And you run across this other issue, which is like, frankly, and we, we can talk more about this later, you know, what is climate change going to do to some of these places? You know, um, someone who we had on the podcast a while back, Esther Mobley, wrote a great piece in the San Francisco Chronicle a couple weeks ago about how some producers in Napa are looking to varieties besides Cabernet Sauvignon because they're worried that 
in 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to be too hot to grow Cabernet regularly in Napa. And they have to have something else planted, you know, Trigo Nacional or Alianico or some variety that, that thrives in hotter climates than Cabernet does. So, so I don't know. I mean, you know, I have my perspective as a restaurant buyer and, and, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but, but from your, your perspective, Adam, and the sort of, especially on the, the journalist side, what do you think? Does it, does it help to have a single variety that you call your own? I mean, I'm, yeah, I do think it does. Um, I've, I've thought about this for a really long time. It's been a, a topic that I've really considered for a while. And I, I'm, I really, that's why I want to have this conversation today because I'm, I'm torn because I like that, you know, people feel like they can do what they want to do and make the kind of wine they want to make. But I do think that when it comes to sales, when it comes to the consumer and being all about the consumer, it's easier for the consumer to understand a region based on a one style of wine, at least initially it's known for. And like, you know what, God, like you can, you can blame the old world, but you know, it's true. Like it's, it's the old world's fault. And you know, the fact that they specialize so much and said, no, to be Chianti, it is this blend and only this blend is just the way that it is. Sorry for that terrible accent. I was going to say, that was really but, like, bad. But, like, that was really bad. But, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, they, the old world did a very good job of educating us that, like, if it's called Champagne, if it's from Champagne, this is what Champagne is and it's Champagne. And if it's, you know, if, if you're drinking a wine from, you know, I don't know, Tuscany or – Chianti, it's this kind of wine. If it's Brunello, it's this kind of wine. And, you know, I think a lot of producers in those regions also make other wines, but they've really become known for this style, this varietal, et cetera. And I do think that the regions that are struggling to find footing in the American market, especially, are really struggling when they, when the region, when the consumer doesn't know, like, well, what are you really, what are you good for? Like, what are you known for? Mm -hmm. Right. So the reason Napa's had such success is because the consumer has been taught that it should be known for Cabernet Sauvignon. And I think in a lot of ways, when, when you become known as a quality wine producing region because of one grape, you do see that other grapes follow. Like you do see that there are people that now drink Napa Chardonnay and drink Napa Pinot and drink Napa Zinfandel and drink Napa Merlot um, in the same regard that, you know, I've, I've seen that wines of Bordeaux, for example, in the U.S. have tons of success marketing its rosé and its white wines because they've, you know, Americans just know Bordeaux now as a quality wine producing region. But I think initially if you come to the U.S. and you just say like we're so special because we can do everything – it becomes very hard for cons consumers to have a reference point then for like what they should think of you as being. And if you think about this like across the board, right, like you have beer – like brewers who become known for brewing more IPA. You know, we're really – we really brew IPAs the best. You know, we're really good at producing IPAs. That's our specialty. And – you know, yeah, like you may get a stout from us or you may get a porter from us if you really like it, but like we're known for IPAs. And unfortunately, like we don't – we've never had to to think of beer in the terms of regions. So, you know, the brewers get to be their own 
person. And I regret that that's the case, that that's not the case in wine, that, you know, a winery doesn't get to be its own person, but we do think about wines regionally. And so because of that, you know, I, I think it's hard. Now, if, if you're talking about, do I think that all wine should do this if you're trying to go after the trade? No, I don't. I think that there's a lot of really talented psalms and things like that. would love to have some super geeky thing from a region where that's, you know, where the producer is making Pinot Noir when everyone else is making Cabernet Sauvignon. I, like that's, full stop finally probably true you know in in your line of work Zach but I think in in terms of the the consumer at the end of the day the consumer needs you know to have uh the consumer really needs to have access to really good high quality wines from a region that they're a that they, they know and they only really learn those regions if they know what kind of wines they're looking for in the first place. Okay, so so here's my here's my argument with your point. And I don't think and it's not that I think you're wrong. I just think it's it's a little bit it can be a little short sighted for regions. The first thing is unfortunately this idea that regions should be associated with one or maybe two varieties has led to a lot of homogeneity in the world of wine. I mean there when we're because t- when we're talking about this, we're not saying oh you know Chile should be known for even something that's grown there in reasonable quantity like Carmenere. We're talking about Cabernet Sauvignon, the most widely planted grape in the on the planet. We're talking about basically Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and that's about it. And that's kind of the those are the big four in the American marketplace. And you know you can sort of make an argument about Pinot Gris, Pinot Grigio. You can make an argument about you know I don't know Riesling or Merlot or Syrah or whatever. But really, what we're talking about is is with New World wine regions should they glom on to an already extremely popular variety and say, hey, this is what we're known for too. And I think you can look at some of some new world wine regions that, that entered the American market um, more recently, like Australia, and see there's a real risk to that for, for regions. Because when you are Australia and you're pumping out a lot of very inexpensive Cabernet and Syrah or Shiraz and Chardonnay. And That's not true. You're, you're, you're actually wrong. So the risk is coming into a market with cheap wine. Like that's the risk. You can come into you. You can destroy a market if you come in with cheap wine. What destroyed Australia had nothing to do with the fact that they are one of the premier regions for producing Syrah. What destroyed Australia was that there was one company that came in and created what we called critter wine. There's been massive business case studies that prove all of this, and then they came in with critter wine, and everyone copied critter wine. So basically, you had tons of other producers that came into the market with wines with animals on the labels. That's what destroyed Australia. Sure, it had but, nothing to do with specialization. Yeah. And actually and actually, the regions that have specialized and have created premium wines and been known for the spe- for a certain kind of style have thrived when other regions haven't. So again, like I get that there's this like desire as a psalm to want a region to do whatever they want. I'm just saying from a business perspective, it is smarter to have a clear marketing language for the consumer. It just is. Sure. If, you, if you don't do that, then you will risk – the whims of whether or not the consumer wants to drink random wine from you. Because for example, let, let's take, let's, let's just, let's take random new world region X. Okay. And say this region isn't really known for much. So you have producers doing, some producers doing crazy natural wine. You have some producers doing Cabernet Sauvignon. You have some producers doing Pinot Noir. You have some producers doing Sauvignon Blanc. You have some producers doing random indigenous grapes. Like how does that region then convince most people to drink wine from it? I don't think they do. I think you're right. I think that's a that's a that's, I agree with you that is a big obstacle. And and my sorry, my to just clarify my point on Australia. I think the the point I was trying to make was the reason Australia was able to get market share, those critter wines were able to get market share is cuz they were recognizable varieties at a very very inexpensive price. It's the same reason why there's a shit ton of wine that comes out of the Central Valley or Central Valley of California that is 
you know, if they're whatever the whatever the equivalent of critter wine is, you know, the random two name wine um, with no actual winery attached to it. Um, the show or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think there's there is a lot of the um, there's a lot of it where it's like you attach a, a well known variety, which I you know kind of I laid out already, and you and you price it low, and you can enter the market for sure. I mean, Argentina's done a great job of it with Malbec. I think it's maybe been to their detriment in the long run. We'll see um, because it's very hard for them for them to move into the premium uh, categories in a lot of cases, not all cases, but a lot of cases. Um, well, but again, but okay, but let's okay. Again, there's a lot of premium Malbec out there and there's a lot of producers from Argentina that would tell you they're selling tons of premium Malbec and they're selling it in their own country. So the only people that actually have a bias against Malbec in Argentina are Psalms. Like the the consumer is buying lots of premium Malbec or it wouldn't be flooding our shelves. Walk into a wine store and look at all the Malbecs over 20 bucks. The consumer base likes Malbec. The people that are saying that, that Argentina has a problem are Psalms. Like that's that's the issue again is like – you can say that it's hurting the industry, and like, look, you know that I'm not the biggest. Like, I don't love Malbec, but that's me as my that's my consumer preferences. But I I, w- I could never say that Argentina has a problem because of Malbec. Argentina is doing very well as a wine producing country because of Malbec, and you see tons of people for two reasons: one, because unfortunately their economy is shit, so it's really cheap to invest there, investing tons of money in Argentina. But you also then see tons of people wanting to invest money in Argentina because they they've come to know it as a premium wine growing you know, region yeah. because of Malbec. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the answer that the, you know, the real answer is we'll find out. I think, you know, it'll be an open question as to whether the Argentinian Malbec is still a big, uh, you know, a top selling item in five, 10, 15 years. But, but I don't everything to ebbs. No, but everything ebbs and flows. You see what sure. I'm saying? Like, but, like but it, Bordeaux but has I'm gone up is, and down, if, but it's but been if, successful. Yeah. But if, but if Malbec ebbs, then what does Argentina do? I mean, that's my point. Maybe they pivot to. They're going to have to ride it out. No, yeah. I think they're going to have to ride it out. Like, or hopefully by that point they've in, they've invested enough in then convincing the the consumer base that there's a white grape they also they also produce really well, or do another red Toronto's grape they also people. produce really well. Please do not no. drink Toronto's. But you know what I'm saying? Like, like it has to come. Like that that's that was that was with my argument with Bordeaux. Like you see Bordeaux doing this, right? You see them actively coming into the U.S. market and educating members of the trade and and consumers on the fact that they also make really great white wines and rosés. Mm-hmm. And are they doing it effectively? I don't know. I haven't looked at the sales data to be able to say 100% whether they have or they haven't. But they're finding those other channels of things that they can be known for because now they're already known as a great place that produces wine because everyone knows the Bordeaux blend. Or you look at the Willamette Valley. You see that there's a lot of producers in the Willamette now that are producing really high-quality whites from grapes that also happen to be you know, associated with places that produce really high-quality Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. But they did that after Pinot. Yeah. Like I think if Lamont just had said like we're this great place to make wine and make whatever the hell you want, I don't think anyone would value wines with that region's name on the label. And I think that's that's what regions I hear from all the time. I want to be I want to be a region where people value that that my, my region's name is on the label and they look for that region and they buy wine for that region. And the only way I think that that happens for a region is then you got to be known for a wine or a wine style. So like a wine made from one grape or some sort of blend, some sort of style, whether you're a region that says we all make really great sparkling wine, like you see what's happening now in southern England, or you say we all make really great blends based on one of these two grapes, something, or the consumer just says, well, like, that's cool, like that you say you make really good wine, but like, 
what kind of really good wine do you make? Yeah. Look, I can't argue with you as much as it pains me. I'm going to, I'm going to instead, I'm instead going to do something very dangerous, which is I'm going to make an aesthetic argument, which God help me. I know you're not the person who's going to want to hear it, but no, I'm not. And I'm going to make you feel really bad for it. But you go, you try. I know I have, I know I have some segment of the vine pair listenership on my side. So whatever. Should we go to the survey and see? Uh, We'll see. It might be a small portion, a small percentage, but uh, anyhow, what I'm going to say is all of what you, all of what you say is, is heard and understood. And I think, look, it's been a thing that, you know, I have as someone who lives in Seattle, who's interacted with the Washington wine industry for a very long time is well aware that it's a struggle for this industry in Washington, that there is not a signature variety or varieties. And that, that instead producers and the regions as a whole are trying to go out and sell themselves. And that's a big challenge. You know, it, it, it undoubtedly has been a big challenge. And it's the reason why, Still to this day, people are like, oh, I didn't even know there was wine in Washington State. Or like, oh, what do you like? You guys make what? Riesling, I guess, maybe? Because that's what people have seen. And that's fair. And I think that's a, a legitimate, I guess, criticism or at least a legitimate sort of um, argument against the region as a whole. What I will say, though, is that um, there is a real, I think, unfortunate um, risk in regions in the new world in particular without a long history. And, and I will say that like, frankly, we're really talking about America here because even South America, South Africa, Australia, there's actually, you know, hundreds of years of viticultural history there. There are vines that go back a long ways and, and they have not, you know, gone through the, with the exception, I guess, of New Zealand, the sort of strict prohibition that the U S went through that really kind of cut the, the legs out from under the industry here. So it, the United States is kind of its own entity in this regard. And, and because of that, with very few exceptions, we just don't know yet what really grows best in a lot of parts of the U S we have some ideas. We're able to better now understand things like really specific soil and climate analysis. But even then there's a lot of uncertainty. And so what I worry about is that we are going to lock a lot of these um, really great growing regions into one or two varieties and say, this is what you have to grow because this is what in 2019 the American consumer wants. And who gives a shit if in five or 10 years we, the American consumer wants something different or we find out, you know what? This I'm not saying that. Region. I'm not saying that. Kumbaya for a sec, but I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you should just try to grow fucking Cabernet Sauvignon because people drink it or Pinot Noir. If you live in a region where you think as a group of producers – we produce really amazing Tempranillo and we're in Texas, then that's what you should grow and fuck the market because the market will come around if the wine is good and people and people like us write about it and talk about it and some start pouring it. So I'm not saying you should just go after the the grape that's the the highest production and, and highest price. Whatever. That's actually the biggest mistake that I see tons of regions make. Like you go out to the wine trails of New Jersey, Connecticut, et cetera. I think there's probably potential in some of those wine regions, but all they're producing is Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay because that's what the consumer comes in and asks for. So they think that's what they have to produce and they just don't do it very well. Or even, you know, the North Fork, right? I think the North Fork could do Cab Franc as its best grape, but instead there's a lot of people producing Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon because they want to sell it because they're so close to New York. Sure. So I'm not saying it should just be a wine, that a, a grape or our style that's popular. It should also be a wine that works for the place. But then you know what? Like if you don't want to specialize, 
and you think the region still needs time to develop because it's super young, then I think it should have time to develop and be super young. But then I think it's hard to then try to make the case, but we also should be known for being a premier wine growing region. Like I think it's hard when you hear that from producers and when you hear that from winery, you know, from 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 regional reps and things like that. Like if it's just because for me as a journalist, it's hard to tell a story that's going to get the consumer to say, cool, so now I know, huh, uh, Temecula, California with what wine? And if you just say, well, Temecula with anything, people say, well, but I don't really want to take that risk. You know, because like what if I grab the one wine from that region that's not great? And so I think if it's a young region like that, it should take its time to figure out what it's good at. And that could take a generation or more. It took a lot of these old wine regions a generation. And look, I get there's going to be a lot of people that listen to this podcast. It's like Adam is crazy and completely wrong and is pigeonholing tons of producers. And that's fu- and that's fine. You can disagree with me. As a drinker, I don't want producers to be pigeonholed. I'm just saying as a, as someone who thinks about sales, like if you're asking me to think about it from a sales point of view, you do kind of have to be pigeonholed. And I think you make a good point and one that I should have given more credence to, which is I think there is more and more space in some of these emerging American or even just New World broadly regions for people to specialize in varieties that are not just the behemoths of the industry at the moment. And I think you're right in saying that some of these regions would actually probably benefit from having a signature variety, but that is something different than what is already on offer from almost – the rest of the world. And so whether that's, as you said, Tempranillo in Texas or Syrah here in Washington or who knows what, it can benefit to be well-known for something and maybe to benefit to be well-known for something that isn't as widely available from the entirety of the rest of the wine world. And so in that sense, I think you're right. I just, again, from a from my, I guess, whatever, lofty perch as a sommelier, I, there's a part of me that does not want to see the entirety of the, you know, kind of incredible complexity of the world of wine reduced or let's say the potential for complexity in the new world um, cut off because someone is saying, hey, we've got to sell X amount of volume in 2022. So we've got to we've got to focus all in on whatever variety. I think it's great to have a, a representation that is understandable to the to the consumer and that people can look for in a store and understand the style and understand the variety or varieties or the blend. But in the end, I think what keeps these regions healthy and vibrant, and it's true in the old world too, even if we don't see it as often, is people who are willing to do something a little different. I mean, you know, we wouldn't 100%. Tuscan without people saying, you know what, fuck hundreds of years of tradition. I want to grow Cabernet Sauvignon and I want to grow Merlot and I want to make those into wines because I think that's the best wine I can make. And if it means I have to initially label it as Vino de Tavola, well then I'll take my chances with that. And I think the wine world is better for people who do not, Oh, you know that, that there's a some subset of the winemaking populace in any region that says, you know what, I am not going to take the easy way out. I'm going to do something different and possibly 100. percent And look, you know what? I actually think that goes back to my argument, which is that when a region specializes, it allows people to step outside the box and get more recognition for stepping outside of said box. When everyone is stepping outside of the box, there is no box. Adam, you and I are, so, I think, doing a thing that I sometimes do with my wife, which is sometimes I think we are agreeing loudly at one another. Exactly, and I love it. So <laughs> here's – I mean that's all I'm saying, right? Like at the end of the day, like Riesling, no one I think is going to argue that Riesling is a you know super well-known grape but for most consumers or a grape that's super popular. But New York State or you know the Finger Lakes in New York State have specialized in it 
thanks to, you know, I think their proximity to Cornell and, you know, Cornell's amazing agriculture school and the professors there who really studied the soil and saw that it was a grape that would really thrive in, um, in the Finger Lakes. And so they planted an amazing grape that has done really well there. And the region's become the premier new world region for Riesling. I, I really don't think you can not deny that. And, you know, if it was just a bunch of producers up there growing grapes prior to Cornell's influence, we may have had, you know, the Finger Lakes just making lots of really kind of not great Cabernet Sauvignon um, because they thought it would sell. But they, they took that risk and now they're getting tons of – and I think they're coming into their own. But look, like they took that risk like in the 50s. Yeah. So I do think it's like it's – it is the long game here. But I do think that like we're going based on these traditions and – I just I don't see another way to when when it comes to consumers really getting to know a region. If not, I just think it's really hard. And I mean, look, it may be okay that's really hard, and you may not want to want to be a region that's really well known or whatever, and that's fine. I also like that's my argument, right? You you can also be a great region that's local to your community and produce great wine and never you know, have any desire to sell that wine outside of the region. And I think that's also awesome. It's the same thing we talk about with breweries. Like it's totally chill to be a regional or local brewery and never want to sell your beers anywhere else, but in that region or, or locale, that's dope. But if you do, that's all I'm saying is that's when it becomes hard to say that I think you can, unless you're a region that has built a name for being known for one kind of wine. Yeah. Fair. I can't really argue. Thanks, Zach. That's like I think that's the first time you've said that. <laughs> I might have I might have accidentally slipped and said it once or twice before. Well, this has been a super spirited debate, and uh, I hear them in the background as I'm sure everyone can chatting because we're setting up for a rum tasting. Um, so I'm going to bounce and go do that. That sounds pretty fun. I'm going to yeah. actually. I'm teaching a Chardonnay class later today, so you know that's you know we've got what our regions, own thing. Zach. We're covering we're covering all the major uh Chardonnay producing regions so you know we'll get a little sampling of everything. Yeah, from like some of the best wine pro- Chardonnay producing regions in the world, right? That, no. that have become known for producing Chardonnay. That's that's correct. Are you pouring any Chardonnay from like a region that doesn't isn't known for producing great Chardonnay? Uh no, that would be counterproductive to this. Exactly. This <laughs> and again, point made, Adam wins. Zach loses. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, as always, give us a review, rate us, uh, whether you listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, um, Spotify, SoundCloud, all that great stuff. It really helps other people discover the show. And shoot us your thoughts at podcast at vinepair.com. If you didn't take that survey, let us know what you like about the podcast, what you want to hear more of. Um, as we go into our, you know, more than a year of doing this, it's great to uh, hear what everyone is enjoying. And Zach, as always, we'll be right back at it next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.